lectures on the back table. So if you have folks you would like to invite to Sunday morning, this might be an easy, just a nice way to say, hey, come to church, here's all the details. Uh, hand, hand them one of these uh, as a way of inviting them to be with us on Easter Sunday. That is all that I'm going to highlight this morning. Again, everything that you might need to know is found in the monthly update. Go ahead and please stand as we um, continue to worship through the reading of God's word. We are in Matthew's gospel still, chapter 27. I'll read verses 1 through 14, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll jump in uh, to the text. So hear God's word. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It's not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it's blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's, bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the, the price of him on whom a price had been pay, set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pray with me together as, as we enter in uh, and open God's word. Father, open our eyes um, to what you have for us uh, the, from this story this morning as we worship you in song, as we worship in, in the hearing of your word. Um, form us into the kind of people who love you uh, and who love others as a result. I pray that where I say my own things, uh, those words would quickly fall away and be forgotten, but where I speak your word after you, God, I pray that you would uh, that you would move, you would teach, convict, comfort if it's needed. Um, God, do uh, have your way with us this morning as we hear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you do when you've gone too far? When you know you can't turn back, uh, you, have, you have reached and gone beyond the point of no return, what do you do when you've gone too far? Beth and I were dating uh, as freshmen in college. We uh, were attending two different schools about 75 miles apart. I was at tiny Tabor College uh, in Hillsboro, Kansas, trying to play baseball. Uh, Beth was in at K-State, the promised land, uh, the um, Manhappiness, Kansas. Tim thinks that's ridiculous, but that's a thing, okay? So that's real. Um, she was there. You can imagine where we spent most of our weekends uh, together in college. Uh, and, and listen, I, we, were at a, we had been dating for a couple years. Um, I would do anything to, to spend time with her and whenever I had the time in college. I would, I would drive through any kind of snowstorm, uh, which is in fact exactly what I did uh, on one occasion. Uh, I was going to surprise her, which I thought at that time was a really good idea, um, right? Who doesn't want someone to show up and say, surprise, you're going to spend the weekend with me. Uh, I thought that was a great idea as a 19-year-old. 
Um, and so that's, that's exactly what I was going to do, and I was not going to let a little snow in the forecast get in the way of my romantic plans. Now, look, I had to make some plans because the car that I drove, uh, a rear-wheel drive 87 Camaro just was not going to do it um, on, in a snowstorm. So my brother had a Jeep, and I thought, look, I'm not stupid. I'm not going to drive this car, so I'm going to drive the Jeep, right, because you can do anything in a Jeep. At least that's what I thought. Um, turns out a Jeep doesn't help you see in whiteout blizzard conditions, uh, which, which is what I had gotten myself into. And so I, I thought it'd be fine, right? This is going to be a good idea. I can do this. Um, and at first, it was going fine, right? I could still see the lines on the road. Uh, I could see, you know, I passed 10 feet in front of me. Um, you know, the road was pretty clear of all the idiot drivers, which I, should have been my first sign that I'm, <laughs> this is a bad deal. Um, but as I went along, passing car after car at 10 miles an hour, um, on the side of the road, in the ditch, turning around, it became pretty clear I've made a huge mistake. I'm in a really bad place. And in fact, I didn't have, I didn't have a blanket in the car. I didn't have, you know, no emergency kit. You know, all the things that I know now in my 30s you ought to have if you're going to drive out into a snowstorm. I didn't have any of this. I didn't even know how, how bad a place I was in. But it, it occurred to me I've made a huge mistake and I can't turn around, not now. Um, I'm in the middle of the storm. I'm halfway there. It'll take just as long to get back to Hillsboro as it would to forge ahead. Um, I was in a bad place. I knew that I had reached the point of no, no return. I was past that point, right? There was no going back now. And actually, just as a side, uh, I did get there. So it took me four hours to get to 75 miles from Hillsboro to Manhattan, but I made it. But listen, we've all had that experience one way or another, right? Maybe not in a snowstorm, maybe not even driving, but the experience of knowing there's no going back. We've reached the, po the point of no return, right? Knowing this is a terrible idea, even wrong, but you've gone too far. At least that's what you think. Maybe in a relationship or a job opportunity or um, a major life decision or, or even just your sense of right and wrong, right? This, this idea that I, I know I probably shouldn't do this, but it's too late now. And here's the, that's the question I've been wrestling with this week, and I think is for all of us this morning, is what do you do when you've gone too far? What do you do when you know there's no turning back, when you've passed the point of no return? And we see that with everyone in this story this morning. The religious leaders have gone too far. Pontius Pilate is in too deep. Judas has gone too far. So what do they do? What are their options? The religious leaders, they defend themselves. They'll die justifying their actions. Pilate washes his hand, hands of the, of the matter. Judas just despairs, despairs and gives up. What do you do when you've gone too far? And we are in, the, we are in the, the final week of Jesus. We've been here for a little, a little while, and we're almost there. We're almost done with Matthew. We are almost to Easter Sunday, but not quite yet. We're actually at the start of a new day in Jesus' final week, Friday morning, Good Friday, the Friday in the Easter story. And, and if you want to follow along, we are in chapter 27. I'm going to reread. We'll start back at verse 1, reread verses 1 through 3 as we dive in. It says, When morning came, all the chief priests and all the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, 
saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And we'll stop there. So in these first three verses, we are introduced to uh, three of the main characters in our story here, all playing a different role, all in the midst of their own snowstorm, so to speak, past the point of no return, all contributing to the death of Jesus. So first, we're going to look, we're spend just a little bit of time with the religious leaders as they defend themselves, their power, their way of life, at all costs, and they will do anything, everything, to destroy Jesus. And where we meet them in this story, they haven't slept all night. They've just concluded this sham trial, just finished uh, condemning Jesus with false evidence, and they conspire to murder, murder him, and in walks Judas, the betrayer. He's come back to them, one of, one of Jesus' friends who has turned him over for next to nothing, and he's having a little bit of seller's remorse, if you will. He decides to give, give the money back. Uh, we'll spend more time with Judas in a little bit, but what's important to see here is it's no use, right? Even throwing the money on the ground doesn't make him feel any better. What's done is done. And I love this little detail in verse 6, the irony here. But the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put, put them, the silver, into the treasury since it's blood money. Right, they take the money back, but they know it's been tainted. <laughs> they say, well, look, we can't put that back in the offering box. This money was used to murder Jesus. It would just be wrong to put that back in the treasury, right? You couldn't possibly do such a thing like that. But we do need to figure something out soon because we've got to go get rid of Jesus. Right? That's the tenor of this scene, this little detail that Matthew gives us. And friends, right off the, right off the bat here, it's the danger of legalism that we're warned against. Living as if keeping a set of rules, a religious, religious rules, can make us good enough, or it can be a defense before God. We can point to it and say, look, we're, we're doing okay. We are in the middle of Lent, which is often a season that, that some, uh, that Christians rightly recognize uh, as a time to set aside for fasting and reflection. It can also be a, a time when we, when we miss it and we try to earn our singing before God. And restaurants often make, make accommodations on Fridays when meat is prohibited. And here's a, here's a picture that actually proves the point of what's going on in this scene pretty well. Right? Just let, that, just let that sink in for you for a moment. I can't eat meat during Lent. Are you kidding me? Oh, look, a special on fish. I guess I'll have that. Right? The dangers of legalism summed up perfectly or terribly, however you want to look at it. But do you see how backwards we can be when we look at the religious leaders and the ways that they try to defend themselves in the face of clear wrongdoing? We see one of the prime ways that we often, what we point to as our defense is, well, at least I'm, I'm keeping the religious rules. <laughs> Meanwhile, our heart is in the toilet, and we have convinced ourselves that we're good because we're following the law, we're following the rules. And that's where the religious leaders are. They're convinced that Jesus is guilty of a, of a religious charge, blasphemy, a serious enough threat to their system that he has got to go. Right? Jesus is a problem. He's got to go, but they don't have the authority to kill him. They can't do it themselves. That would be murder. They have to get him convicted by Rome, or at least prove that he's a political threat to the Roman way of life. So they drag him before Pilate, the Roman governor, who actually does have the authority to sentence criminals to death. And they charge that Jesus has called himself a king, the king of the Jews, which actually 
isn't, to, isn't true. Matthew never indicates that Jesus calls himself king of the Jews. The Magi call him that in chapter 2, but Jesus does not adopt the title. He goes by Messiah, the Christ. But the religious leaders know, they know their Old Testaments well, that, that the Christ is presented as a king in the Old Testament, and so they twist his language to present him as a political threat to the Roman government and way of life. And together they manipulate the truth, right? they twist it, to defend a position built on lies. Jesus isn't a threat to Rome, at least not as an earthly king. He's not worthy of execution on a cross. They know that. <laughs> they sought to get him convicted on false evidence. Right? That's, that's at the heart of what they're doing. But look, they're in deep. They have gone, they have gone way too far to turn back now. In fact, they, they have convinced themselves that Jesus needs to be dealt with, not silenced, not managed, but murdered. And there's this thing about murder, right? It's wrong. They know that. But they can't turn back. They're committed, and so they tell themselves it's okay. In fact, they've constructed a narrative where it's not just okay, but right. He's a blasphemer. He has to be killed. And I know we would, we would never do that, right? But we do. <laughs> Don't we? We justify a way forward that we know is wrong. Instead of turning back or not setting out in the first place, we just barrel ahead into the snowstorm, grabbing onto every defense that we can, that's at our disposal. Right? It's not that bad. I can always stop if I need to. I mean, just one click or maybe two clicks won't hurt anybody. Or, honey, listen, honey, it's not what you think. Everything's going to be okay. Just a little bit of gossip is okay, as long as I, as long as I don't share anything too juicy. Actually, no, this isn't gossip. I'm just letting my friend know how to pray, right? In fact, I probably should tell them. Do you see? We do this. We, tri- we twist the truth to justify a way forward that we know is wrong. We make a way by defending ourselves, by twisting and manipulating the truth to fit our desires. What do you do when you've gone too far? Do you defend your choices, justify yourself? Is there a narrative that you tell yourself and listen to that says, it'll be okay? Perhaps we respond like Pilate and we deflect. Some of us just shift the blame away from ourselves. (laughs) It's a second way that we can deal with sin. Now, Pilate is a fascinating character. He's the governor of Judea. Um, He governs from Caesarea, which is about 75 miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, Basically, the distance from here to Topeka. So if you want to think of that sort of, he's in the governor's mansion in Caesarea, and his primary role is to oversee Judean affairs, right? Keep the tax money flowing into Rome, keep the peace, um, squash possible rebellions at all costs from the people that are being governed there. And, and each year during his tenure at Judea, he would make the trip to Jerusalem for that very reason, to keep peace in order. He would come during the Jewish festival of Passover, not to celebrate, he had no, no interest in celebrating Passover, but he would... He would go and he'd be present for this time when God's people, hundreds of thousands of them, would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate 
a time when God delivered them from Roman dom- or from foreign domination, right? Remember, the Passover is, is the festival where God's people celebrate and remember the fact that he delivered his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. And so you can imagine how a Roman ruler might feel during this festival, that an uprising is just one leader or one lunatic away during Passover. And remember how this Passover begins. Well, next Sunday is, is Palm Sunday. That's when we remember that Jesus rides into the city on a donkey, which is a very kingly thing to do, right? Not, maybe not as a political power, but still, it's behavior that would make Pilate a little bit suspicious. What has Jesus come to do? What's his agenda? Why is he here in Jerusalem? Now, if Pilate's lucky, it's nothing, right? Passover will come, it will go, it will blow over without any incident. Um, but of course, his hopes are dashed on this Friday morning, the start of a weekend that will be anything but peaceful for Pontius Pilate. And it's Caiaphas, his appointed delegate in Jerusalem, who has actually dragged him in the mess, right? And he can tell that Caiaphas is out for blood. Something about Jesus being the king of the Jews. Now, Caiaphas being out for blood would not bother Pilate in any, in any way, shape, or form. We often, we, act, we often read this story or think of Pilate as sort of a pushover, right? The crowds demanded that Jesus be crucified, and he's like, okay, I guess. We, we often think of him as a, as a weakling. But in fact, he was, he was anything but that, right? Anyone who held this type of position in the Roman Empire was anything but weak. In fact, he was known to be ruthless. But he's not just ruthless, he's also smart. He knows the religious leaders are envious of Jesus. That's why he is on trial. And he knows that something is different about Jesus. Look at verse, verses 13 and 14. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him, he, Jesus, gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus, in his silence before him, and all these charges waged against him, which Pilate knows are, are a sham, Pilate's amazed by Jesus, even to the point of trying to talk to people out of asking for blood. He knows that Jesus isn't worthy of public execution. Now, it's not because he cares about Jesus. Pilate's ruthless. May may not be able to care less about Jesus. But what is brewing here is exactly what Pilate doesn't need, right? The public death of of a leader or a lunatic has rebellion written all over it. Plus, his wife has just told him, I've had a dream about this Jesus character, a righteous man, don't have anything to do with him. (laughs) Better not to mess with superstition, right? So for Pilate, a flogging and release, that would be great, right? Give the people what they want, that should satisfy them. And there was a custom during the feast to release a prisoner. To release a prisoner to the people, and so Pilate assumes if he gives them the choice between Jesus, who has healed the sick, who has fed the masses, who who the people by and large love, If they have a choice between him or Barabbas, the insurrectionist, the murderer, the thief, it's a clear choice, right? Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So it's no use. The religious leaders demand that Jesus be killed. Pilate's hands are tied here, right? 
crowd grows rowdier by the moment. They want Jesus executed. And again, Pilate's no coward, but, but the momentum is shifting. And the riot that he dreads is looking inevitable. He doesn't give them what they want. And for Pilate, it would be nice to have Jesus off of his hands, right? Get him out of the picture. If any of this king talk really is true, Caesar would want that smothered. So Pilate is looking for a reason to give the people what they want, but he doesn't want to take the blame. Look at verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. He says, it's not my fault. My hands are clean. I've washed them of this condemnation and death. This is your problem. All while he signs the death warrant himself, right? He is the one with the authority to do so. He condemns a righteous man, even as he looks and points to all these reasons for why it's not his fault. He blames the crowd. He deflects all responsibility away from himself. Now, I know we're not Pilate, but if I look hard enough, I see myself in the scene. In fact, I don't have to look very hard here. Because there are two main ways that we deflect our guilt. The most obvious is to blame, to shift blame to others, right? We look at our mess, we look at our problems, maybe we even say, I sinned. We, can, we look at sin and call it what it is. And then we look to someone else to accuse. Maybe not outright, we may not even say it out loud, but we're looking for others to accuse for our wrongdoing, right? The devil made me do it. It's a common one and is partially true, which is why it's such an attractive accusation to make. Or my spouse, right, if they just weren't so overbearing, or if they just listened to me a little bit more, or my kids provoked me into that, ang- into that temper, or my parents, man, they really screwed up down the road. Right, my boss, my friend, my coworker, we look, to a lot, we, we look to a lot of different people to blame for our wrongdoing. Or we'll point to our circumstances, right? I had no choice. And then look what's happened to me in my past. I can't escape it. That's not me. We shift the blame or we claim passivity. We can say, well, I didn't, I didn't actually, I wasn't actually the one to blame here. I mean, Pilate doesn't actually put the nails in Jesus' hands, right? So he's good. It's not just our actions that condemn Jesus to a cross, but even our inaction. So let me ask, when you've gone too far, when you know that you are down a path that is sinful and wrong, who do you look to blame? I mean, even think about some of those sins. I mean, I'm assuming you have them because I know I do. Those sins that you struggle the most often with, what are you blaming for that? How are you trying to wash your hands of that wrongdoing? When you find yourself going down that path again and again, are you pointing to your circumstances? Are you pointing to another person? Who are you blaming? What do you do when you've gone too far? Do you deflect the guilt away from yourself? One final response, when we've gone too far, we can end up, like Judas, in despair. Now, Judas may be 
uh, he may be more interesting than Pilate as a character in this story. One of the 12, he's close to Jesus, he's a friend. He left everything to follow him. He saw him heal, he saw him feed people, he saw him love people, and then for almost nothing at all, he betrays him. Maybe Jesus wasn't meeting his standards for what a Messiah should be. Maybe he had second thoughts about this life that he had chosen in following Jesus. We don't really know his motives for betrayal. But equally interesting, to me at least, are his motives for changing his mind. Did he not really know that Jesus would be condemned? Maybe, maybe Judas really thought, well, they have nothing on Jesus. He'll just get a beating, and we, I can have my money. Jesus will walk away. We don't really know, but regardless of his, of his motives, he knew he'd blown it, and he tried, he tried to turn back. But he was past the point of no return. He couldn't fix it. He couldn't solve it. He couldn't make it right. He couldn't even make himself feel better. He has gone too far, and there's no defending, no deflection, only despair, and and in fact, the epitome of despair here where where Judas takes his own life. And I want to say this at this point. if, If you feel like you're in a spot like Judas, in a spot of despair, please talk to me or talk to Tim. No matter what has led you to that place of despair, I hope you'll see there is another way. And this is a safe place, and we want to help. And listen, I feel for Judas because he truly believes this is the best option. And he dies carrying that much shame. And despair is so easy. Uh, It's so easy to come into, and it can overtake us. Hopefully not to this extent, but we know it's weight. Um, Despair throws us into a vicious cycle. Addicts often experience this cycle where they act out, they do something terrible, they know it's bad, but there's an addiction to it, but they act out, and it leads them to guilt and shame and despair, and they want to feel better, to numb that, and so there's an acting out to do the same thing again, to feel better, which actually leads to guilt and shame, right? The cycle, the despair plays a huge part in, and this is one of the things that Satan is so good at. And we shouldn't solely blame Satan for our problems, but he does damn us twice here. He tempts us to sin. He makes it look really good. And then when we've done it, he tempts us to despair. He accuses us saying, it's no use. You're not worth it anymore. There's no hope for you. You're only going to fall back into that sin that you've been trying to get, get rid of your entire life. There's no use. Do you recognize that cycle? I know I do. Feeling like we've gone too far. What do you do? Do you defend? Right, I'm okay. It's not that bad. Then when you realize actually it is that bad, do you try to shift the blame away in deflecting? Or do you finally get to the point where you say, what's the use? In despair. Now, it's not just you and me, and it's not just these guys in the story. This is the response to sin from the very beginning that we see in Genesis 3 in the garden with Adam and Eve, right? As they sin and they are 
filled with guilt and shame and hide and blame shift and point the finger, (laughs) defend, deflect, despair. And all of that leads to, as it has from the very beginning, leads to death. Not just the death of Jesus, like we see here, but your death, my death. Sin leads to death. But when we feel like we've gone too far, those may feel like our only options. To put up a defense for our sin, to deflect it away, or to despair. That's why Jesus came to die. Look at verse 28. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his clothes, put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Be spending more time there next week. But Jesus goes to that cross to give us another way to deal with sin. Actually, to deal with sin himself. He dies a horrible death so that even when you've gone too far, even when you feel like there's no turning back, when you've passed the point of no return, even when you've gone too far, you're never too far gone. And listen, that's the real irony of this story here, right? We've got these three characters, the religious leaders, Judas, Pontius Pilate, all complicit in Jesus' death, all facilitating his death in some way, and are actually making possible, in his death, making possible a new way to respond to sin. Instead of the old ways, disastrous ways, his death and resurrection would actually free us from sin. He'd He gives us an alternative, not defensiveness, not deflection, not despair, but deliverance. Friends, you don't have to defend yourself anymore when you sin. Jesus stands in your place before God the Father. He stands in your place as your advocate and says, if you are in me, not guilty. What it means to be justified in Christ There is no longer, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is our defense. You can respond to sin in that way, no matter what you've done, no matter your guilt or shame, no matter who accuses you, if you are with Jesus, he declares you righteous. You don't have to deflect or blame shift or hide your sin any longer. You don't have to try to wash yourself clean, right? Wash your hands and say, I don't have anything to do with sin. Jesus actually looks at sin, calls it as such, and he came to purify you from it. He washes us clean through his blood. I mean, that's that's why he came. You no longer have to deflect and blame shift, and you no longer have to despair. He is forming you and me into the people that he wants us to be, and his death and resurrection give us hope as a response to our sin. So friends, let your defense become surrender. Don't don't try to stand before God as your own defense. That's why Jesus came. 
Don't, don't try to shift your blame to someone else. We, we deserve death. We deserve what sin brings our way, and yet that's why Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died in our place. Let him turn your despair into gladness. Because even when you've gone too far, the good news of the gospel is that you are never too far gone. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is good news that is actually for us. I pray that we would see our sin for what it is as an offense against you. It's not just a mistake or misjudgment that we would call it what it is when we sin, but that we would not be tempted to be our own defense, to deflect our guilt away from ourselves, but actually to see that you took it on yourself for us so that we don't have to despair but have the hope of eternal life in your death and resurrection. Pray that we would cling to that truth today, this coming week, especially as we prepare our hearts to remember your death and resurrection around Good Friday and Easter. God, I pray that these truths would would permeate uh, every nook and cranny of our hearts and that we would Live as those who have been delivered from sin and death in your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.